It started with that Michael Scott quote. Here's what happens in that episode. The Dunder Mifflin employees are playing a secret Santa. Kelly gets Oscar a shower radio. Creed gives Jim his old jacket-like shirt that he puts in a Walmart sack on the day of the party. Jim gives Pam a teapot with all this special stuff inside. And then Ryan opens his gift, and it's a video iPod. Now, a video iPod is just a bad version of the iPhone, but in 2007, it was amazing. And when Ryan opens it, he's shocked and stoked, and Michael comments, man, someone really got carried away with the spirit of Christmas. And then says under his breath, I got carried away. Ryan says, wasn't there like a $20 limit? This was 400 bucks. Are you sure? Michael responds, how do you know? You left the price tag on it. Who cares? It doesn't matter what I spent. What matters is Christmas is fun. And in the very next scene, Michael opens his present, and it's an oven mitt that Phyllis made. Michael is hurt and angry, and in his anger says, so Phyllis is saying, I know you did a lot to help the office this year, Michael, but I only care about you an oven mitt's worth. I gave Ryan a video iPod. Now, all of this causes Michael to then change the rules of secret Santa to a better version, or so he says. It's called Yankee Swap, and his mission is to acquire back his own gift, the video iPod. Now, Yankee Swap is essentially white elephant gift exchange, you, you know, where you trade gifts depending on the number you get, and if someone else's gift is better... Voila, if you have a better number, that gift becomes yours. Now, everyone in the office gets mad at Michael for this, of course, and this, and, uh, because the secret Santa gifts were made for specific people. But every time they get mad, Michael just yells, Yankee Swap! Now, it's a great episode if you haven't seen it. I love it. It's one of my favorites. But it illustrates some of the ways that we, human beings, think about gifts and gift-giving. When Michael gives an extravagant gift, he expects two things in return, honor and praise for being so generous and reciprocal extravagance. He wants the love shown to him in the same way that he's shown love to someone else in this many dollars. He isn't interested in Phyllis's art project. In fact, he's hurt and insulted by it. Now, have you ever given a gift and then expected something in return? Like, Michael, maybe with the hope that the the person would give you a gift back and would acknowledge it or at least acknowledge it with a thank you or with some sort of praise and honor to you. But then they give you the thank you and you're like, I'm not sure that's enough. Or maybe you expect them to return the favor. You gave them a ride. They should buy you dinner. You bought them a birthday gift. They should do the same for you. You posted a particularly good picture of them on Instagram Why do they keep posting frumpy pictures of you? What is your expectation in gift giving? Does your gift giving ascribe to you the worth that you're seeking? Now, here's why this matters. In the Greco-Roman world of the first Christians, gift giving was a regular part of the social cultural matrix. Like there was a way to give and receive gifts. Now, just like the office... Here is how gift-gifting would have been done in the ancient world. I give a gift to Ryan because Ryan is the hot intern, and I want to be friends with him, and so he is worthy of my love. Phyllis, on the other hand, is not. Ryan, you can repay me with cultural cachet or friendship, or at the very least, I can receive honor from the group because gift-giving will reveal to everyone that I'm super generous. Gift-giving in the Greco-Roman world was just like this. It was based on the worth 
of the receiver. If you couldn't repay a gift with honor or equal gift, then you were not worthy of a gift. Seneca, the Stoic philosopher, in Paul's day, said it this way, gifts go around in circles. It's like a continuous ball game where one person throws a ball to another in such a way that it can easily be caught and thrown back. Gifts hold a society together if they are given wisely to one who is worthy. So in our world, if your sibling or spouse doesn't have a way to pay back your generosity, if your neighbor or friend or office mate, will you still be generous? Or if there is no one who would be impressed in the room by your gift, will you still give a video iPod? Worth and honor are major factors in gift-giving in the days of the Bible, just as they are for us today. So today my aim is to show you how God's gift of grace in justification is the perfect gift. It is, it is the Yankee swap that we need. This gift of Jesus is better than Adam's gift that he gives us because it's life and not death, because it's free and it's incongruent, and because it's super abundant. So first, the gift that Jesus gives is better than Adam's gift because it is life and not death. The whole section here is a comparison of what is given to us in Adam and what is given to us in Christ. We are given something by our first parents, and it's a gift that unfortunately keeps on giving. It's sin that leads to death, Paul says. In verses 12 to 14, Paul starts not with sin, but with death. He's asking the question, why do we die? This is Paul's primary inquiry. Last week, we talked about Jesus is life. Well, why do we die if Jesus is life? Why does death spread to all humanity? Paul's conclusion is, we must deserve death because of sin. Here's what Paul says in the Greek. Because of death, all sinned. Notice that. Because of death all sinned. Paul begins the section with a reality, the reality of death. And we know this to be rea- uh, the reality, beloved, don't we? It isn't just during a pandemic when we realize, oh yeah, death is, is real. It's shoved in our face when we least expect it, but we know death. We know it here in Albuquerque. Well, uh, we know it with uh, friends who've lost loved ones. My wife, Danette, had a friend who lost someone to suicide this week. Like, death is a reality. And we as a culture are at work constantly to delay it, put it off, hide it, or for ourselves to be hidden from it. Paul in this church knew death as well. Plague and loss were part of life in Paul's world. And so Paul launches in to showing how The gift we receive from Adam leads to death, and how the gift we receive from Christ leads somewhere else. He is making a contrast between Adam and Jesus. The curse of Adam's sin is death, but the gift of Jesus' death is life. So death, he says, comes through one man, through Adam, our first parent. Because of sin, and since all sin, all die just like him. Paul continues, but in verse 13, he kind of takes a side road. He wants to reiterate to the audience made up of both Jews and Gentiles 
that the law reveals sin. Where there is no law, Paul says, sin isn't revealed. Where there is law, we see sin. The law is the flashlight, in other words, in the dark room. It shines its beam and shows to us what sin is. It's revelatory, so that sin is there in the dark even before the light of the law, is what Paul is saying. But when the law comes, we clearly see that it's sin. And this is the sin that leads to death. It led to death before the giving of the law. Death preceded sin in that way. Death became apparent before the sin which caused it. Sin is not taken to account, in other words, is what Paul is getting at, until the law is given. And when the law is given, oh, that's sin. And so verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses. What he's saying is, we see that death reigned before we knew what sin was in the giving of the law. Again, sin is the flashlight. It tells us what sin is. Now, there were sin before that. That's not what Paul's saying. But we didn't have knowledge of that sin until the giving of the law. But death was always there. It reigned in humans. And then he says, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. What Paul is trying to get at is our inherited sin from Adam, even though it might not be the same as Adam, was a type of sin, but death still reigns even if our sin isn't exactly like Adam's sin. Even though we don't break the command in the same way Adam broke the command, even, though, even when our rebellion, in other words, isn't deliberate against God. Like, we sin sometimes unknowingly. We don't always choose to sin. We don't always choose to rebel against God in our sin. Sometimes we sin, we stumble into it. We fall into it. And what Paul is saying is even though your sin isn't like the transgression of Adam and its same kind of rebellion, it still causes death. Death reigns in all of us even if we didn't break the, the command the same way Adam did. Now again, Paul is comparing Adam and the gift, it's not really a gift, but the results of Adam's sin and the death that it caused to Jesus and what his death causes. Now, James Edwards is a commentator. He says, Adam's sin and the result to all death is actually a harbinger of hope. He's saying that Adam's sin is the good news before the bad news. It sets up Jesus as the one who will usher in a different epoch of time. We have all been under Adam. That's ushered in a timeline of sin. Well, when Jesus comes through his death, a new timeline begins. And we see this in verse 15. Here Paul launches into gift language. The free gift, he says, is not like the trespass. Jesus' gift, in other words, is different than Adam's gift. In Adam, we die. In Jesus, we live. Adam and Christ are antitypes. His gift is not like Adam's trespass. It's a different kind of gift because the gift that Jesus brings is better because it leads to a better end. Look at verse 17. For if death reigned in Adam, that one man, how much more will those who receive the gift of abundant grace and righteousness reign in the life of the one man, Jesus. The gift of God is the perfect gift because it isn't like the gift of Adam. It leads to life and not death. And then Paul, what he does, lays alongside this argument about perfection and goodness in Jesus, 
He lays against that our weakness. And that's point two. The gift is better because it's free and incongruent. Our sin and our weakness is what leads to the point of Christ giving the perfect gift, a better gift than Adam because it's free and it's incongruent. Paul is emphasizing that the grace in which we stand is the product of God's unconditioned love. Paul goes out of his way to underline the absence of our worth. Now, we've talked about this through Roman, and it's going to continue as a theme. The absence of our worth on the human side. In verse 6 of this same chapter, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, while we were enemies, Christ died. Verses 15 to 20, he walks through our sin inherited in Adam that makes us sinners and weak, that gives us the gift of death, which isn't a gift, and how that weakness sets us up to acquire a better gift. God gives the gift freely to the undeserving. Now, we've heard this a million times, but don't miss the scandal of it. If gift-giving in Paul's day was based on worth and merit, that it acted like a game in social circles, that I have something, I'm going to toss it over here to you, now you have something, and you're expected to then toss it either back to me or someone else who is worthy of the gift. And gift-giving kept society up in the Greco-Roman world. It's how business got done. Things definitely haven't changed even in our day. But it had to be given to someone who had worth, who could convey that worth back upon you or help you in some sort of way or who would honor you because of your gift. That's how gift giving was done. And then Paul shows up into this world and says, God doesn't give gifts like that. In fact, he gives gifts to people who aren't worthy. It's scandalous. It's shocking. It violates social construction. Wisdom in Seneca's day was using gifts to, get, to attain something better for yourself. But wisdom in the economy of the Bible is giving gifts to the unworthy. God finds the most vile and most worthless ones and gives his gift freely, unconditioned, like you don't deserve it, you can't pay me back. We have something called the debtor's ethic which is when I put you into my debt, you then do something for me and help me out. I must repay you with something similar, something equal. But God isn't like that. Now, we think that God's like that sometimes. We think God has done so much for us, now it's my job to repay him. That is not the gospel. That is not how it works. God has given something you can't repay him back for. There's no way to repay him back, and it comes to us in our most unworthy places. There's no hidden potential in us to pay it forward. That comes from God himself. And this gift of God is a particular gift. It's not just given generally. It's given particularly in himself. The gift that God gives takes place in the body of Jesus by Jesus' death and the shedding of his blood. Like the gift is all ultimate, right? I mean, there's no greater gift than your life. Earlier in the chapter, in verse 7, Paul says, One would scarcely lay his life down for a good person or a good cause, but Christ died for the worthless. Those who are worth 
the least. This is the message Paul is preaching and a message that finds him accused of being scandalous and foolish by his contemporaries. This is what is having mobs run him out of town. Now, Martin Luther, the German reformer and theologian, was especially sensitive to this and also grateful for it, this incongruity of grace, this free gift. It is only, he says, because this God gives this grace to the weary that there is rest for your bones and mine. It is only because God gives this grace to the weary that there is rest for your bones and mine. God, whose grace is the giving of his son for sinners, is the one whose nature it is to make something out of nothing. Now let's pause here for a second. The gift that God gives to us in Jesus can create something out of nothing. Life from death, grace from sin, honor from shame, sons and daughters from enemies. So I want you to think about your, right now, do you need something created out of nothing in your life. Like there's some kind of news or situation that you received this week that has left you undone and you need God to invade that space and create something. There's nothing there now, but you need him to invade that space and create something where nothing is. The good news of the gift of God in Jesus is that it's exactly what God does. He did it in the beginning in creation where he created out of nothing. Ex nihilo, by his words, he created something out of nothing. And he's still doing that today when he visits us and creates something out of nothing. When we don't know him, we're running away from him, we're, we want nothing to do with him. God invades that space in our life and saves us. He creates something out of nothing. And he does it in circumstances that are dire, where we need miraculous things to happen. God invades those places. The the free gift and the incongruent gift remind us that that is the conditions for us to receive such a gift. The gift of free and current grace comes into the nothing place. All those places where you feel unworthy all those places where you aren't worthy, all the places where you feel nothing and fear nothing, these places we've been let down and we've let others down, that's where incongruent grace comes. The upside-down places, into the nothing places. And this is a grace that saves. Like it's a gift that changes us. It changes our status. We do become friends instead of enemies, Instead of sinners, we're sons and daughters. Instead of death, it's life. Instead of sin and death reigning, it's grace and righteousness leading to life reigning. So Luther adds this, God accepts no one except the abandoned, makes no one healthy except the sick, gives no one sight except the blind, brings no one to life except the dead, and makes no one holy Accept sinners. The incongruity and freeness of the gift points in two directions. It identifies the contradiction between the content of God's gift and the condition of its recipients. God's Son is given to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Even as it signals the impossible, 
the overcoming of that con- con- contradiction and condition. Enemies are reconciled. The abandoned and alone are adopted. Those in bondage are redeemed. The ungodly are called righteous, and the dead, by grace, are summoned to life from the grave. And so Luther says, God's love does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. When God finds, according to Paul's diagnosis, is nothingness and bondage and sin and death. We are all in Adam's sin. God finds us dying, dying in that sin, and yet that's where God's love creates incongruously and impossibly freedom, righteousness, and life. The gift creates unprecedented new conditions. Dead are raised to life. Dividing walls of hostility are destroyed. Now hear this. There is hostility in your life, in my life, and in our world. And the gift of God's grace in Jesus creates unprecedented new conditions where you think it is impossible for there to be peace. God, by his gift in Christ, can bring peace. So the gift lands only on the dead, only on the unworthy, only on the needy, only on the weak. And this gift says your worth is then given to you as gift. It's crucial that we grasp this step if we are under, to understand the gift of grace that God gives, if we are going to trust it by faith and grow in it. The gift lands on you unworthy and then makes you worthy. And what's the greatest gift you've been given? Think about that. Most of us haven't had someone give their actual life for us, but you might have. It could be some material good, a car, an experience, vacation, a future, an education, something heartfelt, creative expression of love, a mixtape, a TikTok video. What's the greatest thing you've been given? The gift in Christ, the ultimate one, the purest one, the best among us, he's given for you. Unworthy as you sit and conveys upon you an alien worth Verse 18, through one man's obedience, many are made righteous, good, acceptable. Now, this is how it works for me. I don't know if it works for you this way. What's troubling about that for me is that I ultimately would rather earn the gift and make myself worthy. I'm Michael Scott. I want the honor of giving the best gifts. I create stuff for people, and I make meals and videos. I buy gifts. I want the honor of being the most worthy to receive the best gift. So I want my wife to think I'm so awesome when I give her a great gift. And then I, my expectation is return on the investment. The heart wants what the heart wants. I want the reward for my hard work. I want people to see my generosity. I want to prove myself worthy. This is what we do. We are all Michael Scott. All of us insecure, needy, desperate, hoping someone will ascribe worth to us in some way. We know we are unworthy. We live with it every day in ourselves, in our body. We know how life is short, and then we die, and people are forgotten. So we work and work to make our name great and gain worth. Now think about what you're pursuing right now. 
a promotion, a degree, a home, a new home, a second degree, a new job, attention from someone you love, friendship from someone you admire, accomplishments in your sport or field, experiences that endure and produce memories that will last. Those are things we pursue. And think about how vulnerable life is. Think about how wounded you feel when you don't receive what you think you deserve. What's the temptation in those moments? Well, I don't need you. I can create my own worth, my own righteousness. So you join a new tribe and a new group, and you go about constructing a new identity and more worth. And this keeps us from being present in our lives, present to the very complex and real emotions that we feel, because we're always working and striving to generate worth, to get someone to affirm that we are good enough. Why do we do this? Why can't we just believe God, especially a holy God, that he can love us as we are? We somehow, anyhow, try to clean ourselves up, get ourselves right. Like when I go to the doctor and I know I'm going to get weighed and my blood pressure is going to get checked, I'm like, I have to go try to lose weight before I go to the doctor to clean myself up so I'm worthy of a gift. And sometimes we say, yes, I believe this, and then we get to living. We come to church, we have people asking us about our lives, and at first we're sheepish, and we don't want to share, but then we do, and we confess, our struggles come out, it feels good to be honest, to admit that we can't create our own worth, and we receive this grace from friends that we didn't deserve, which happens here at City Press all the time, by the way. This is a church and a people that seek to do that to one another. But we do that, and then we mess up again. We do the same things over again. We envy, we lust, we gossip, whatever. But this time, when you come back to that same group of friends, you don't want to confess. Because you think, I should be past this now. I should be back to achieving my worth. So we hide from them and hide from God. We stop going to church. We just go, but we feel guilty, ever guilty, ever ashamed. We make promises to ourselves, how we'll be better, but that just makes you condemn yourself more and more when you fail. The incongruent gift of grace means God understands all of that, and that he alone can give you the worth that you're so desperately craving and seeking. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, I think I've used this quote before, but says, Jesus does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for a renewed pardon, even when you've already confessed this and then just did it again with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's what he came to heal. He went down into the horror of death, plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of grace and mercy to his people or a gift. And this leads to the last point. The gift that Jesus gives is superabundant. Superabundance is the scale of God's gift. It is the excessive quantity. It is more than enough. Paul says it all throughout this passage. Verse 15, Paul says, the gift is overflowing. Verse 16, Adam's sin results in condemnation, but Christ's gift, justification. Christ's gift is super abundant because it prevails. It prevails over judgment and it justifies you. How much more efficacious is the Christ gift? Verse 17, to those who receive it, receive an uh, 
abundance of grace. Verse 18, it leads to justification to all who receive it. It makes us righteous when sin and death raise. When sin and death reign, grace abounds even more. Verse 19, the many sinners are made righteous. Verse 20, where sin increases, grace abounds even more. Verse 21, where sin and death reign and death through sin, grace might also reign with a righteousness that leads to eternal life. Now Paul here is again doing the lesser to greater comparison. If the lesser gift does this, how much more will this greater gift do this? This is the real Yankee swap. Where the sin that we possess in Adam, where everywhere death and condemnation reign, where everywhere there's disobedience and rebellion, this is a swap that transforms us so that we no longer feel the need to swap. Our work for his grace, our worth for the worth he gives. It comes through a savior who dies for enemies. It is applied to those who are unworthy, who gives video iPods for no other reason than a secured and reckless love. It comes from a savior who was, when tempted like Adam, didn't sin. In the wilderness, tempted, Jesus obeyed God's word, lived on God's word. In the garden, abandoned and alone, asking for the cup to be taken away, Jesus endured suffering and humbled himself by becoming obedient even unto death. The death that sin produced, Jesus went even there so that the man, that men and women, us, who share in the condition of Adam, might instead share in Christ's gift. And because of this, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. So where you see sin in your life, in your home, in our world, the promise guaranteed by this gift is that grace is more rampant yet. That grace outweighs the sin and will overwhelm it. That grace will outstrip the power and the destruction of sin. In our world where injustice and social decay threaten the world with darkness and anarchy, grace undoes the madness. Sin and death will be engulfed, Edward says, in an avalanche of love. This is the super abundant gift that frees us from our past, frees us from what our anxieties demand for us to produce in the future, and frees us to be present in the moment of the now. Because this gift gives us worth and keeps giving us our worth when our sin goes deep Grace goes deeper still. Grace meets and exceeds this sin. When death reigns, the free gift of righteousness or the rectifying, undoing work of God in Christ fixes and overcomes and meets us in our death. Adam was a source of death to those who follow him, even though they didn't eat the fruit of the tree. But Christ is the bringer of of righteousness. And those who belong to him, although they have not performed the righteousness, when Adam's sin is still corrupting and death is still reigning, Christ's righteousness moves in and justifies all who believe. And what do you do? You receive it. Open-handed. We have skepticism about such a gift. It's too good to be true. There's no such gift that way. It's too costly. I can't possibly take it. We all do this. Someone gives you a costly gift. They want to show you extravagant love, and you're like, oh, no, don't do that. 
But the reception to this gift is always no. Like, Paul, like Peter says, when Jesus goes to wash his feet, and he says, no, you can't do that. And then Jesus says, well, you can't have a part of my kingdom. And then Peter says, well, don't just wash that. Wash my whole head and body too. That is our reception. Where we don't bank on anything else. We don't hedge our bets. We bank on the gift and the gift alone. Paul ends this section. He says, the reign of righteousness and eternal life comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, this morning, there are two ways to live. Either in reception of the gift of death through Adam or in the reception of the gift of life through the Son of God, Jesus. When you hear about the gift, it would seem that we would all choose the latter over the former. But apart from God's intervention, we don't and we won't. We will always go the way of Adam choosing that gift, thinking my freedom is better, thinking my need to achieve my worth is better. And even there, our hope is Christ. This morning, if you sit there on the precipice of that choice, your hope this morning is Christ. Christ is the one who pushes you over the edge catches you over the edge, carries you over the edge. And the good news this morning, this gift is forever a surprise, stronger than any shame and fears that haunt us. The question of our worth is not answered by weighing the facts of our biography or our performance. It's given to us in and through the Son, and you know that because he gave himself for you. In him, by grace, God says to you what God has always said to the Son, whom he did not spare for you, but sent for you. You are my beloved child, and in you I am well pleased. Let's pray. God, we pray that we would imbibe this this morning through the gift of the table. As we come to your table this morning, we would receive open-handed the gift of your grace and your Son and imbibe it and live. Let us receive it with faith, with a hope that banks on the death and resurrection of the Son of God for unworthy sinners like us, and that we receive our worth this morning, that the Son of Man came not to save his life, but to give his life as a ransom for all of us, that that alone conveys our worth to us. May we come and receive it, the superabundant gift that it is in Christ. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.